0: Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at GPCGA.org. That's GPCGA.org. We are in the book of Ecclesiastes. We are today going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. Uh, If you have the Blue Pew Bibles, this is on page 554, or if you would prefer the Red Pew Bibles, which has larger print, it is on page 658. While you're turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I also want to uh, remind you that for kids ages 5 to 5th grade, we have Caruso Kids Zone out these back doors here. That's where a time of teaching where our kids go out. And this year they're studying the question and answers that we talked about already in the New City Catechism. They're going to be going over those question and answers. And so parents, I encourage you uh, to ask them, say, hey, what did you learn today in Caruso Kid Zone? I also just want to say once again what a glorious, amazing thing it is that God has given us another covenant child called us to be in relationship with him, to love him and to pray for him. And I would encourage you, even now, to begin praying for Sterling. Praise God for him and for what God will do in and through him. Once you've gotten to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, please stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to the dust all return." Who knows whether the spirit of God goes upwards and whether the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Father, we thank you for Ecclesiastes and the encouragement that you have brought us through it. We pray as we open up this word that you would help us to understand the concepts with our minds, that our hearts would be driven to the gospel of your hope, and that our hands would work out the things that we learn in our lives through application. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So we are studying Ecclesiastes, uh, and as we have said, uh, particularly last year as we went through all the different books of the Bible, uh, context is, yes, I love that context is king. What does this mean? But by the way, we're training our counselors at camp this summer that that's important so that they start to understand already that they need to understand the context before they can understand the word. And Lord willing, they're also teaching their kids that. That's part of our discipleship process. Context is king means that anytime we're going to open up the word, we need to understand what the context of that book is. What type of literature is it? Because we read different types of literature differently. We read poetry differently than we read prose, differently than we read prophecy, differently than we read apocryphal, apocryphal literature. And so Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature, but as we said with our first sermon, there are a lot of different ways that God uses the wisdom literature in Ecclesiastes. We have poems, we have comparisons, we have all kinds of different linguistic methods. So it's going to be important that we pay attention to what's going on, particularly where we read. Ecclesiastes was written either by Solomon or a Solomon-like character. Um, I prefer to think of it as Solomon. A lot of the text lines up well, but I could be wrong, and that's okay. But it is a Solomon-like character, a king who has seen lots of things. And the context is that Uh, If you think about the kings and the history of Israel, they go from Egypt to the desert to an agrarian society where every time they plant their crops, they have to pray. They have to pray that God would raise those crops up so that those crops would feed them. They're trusting entirely on God. And then once they enter into the promised land and get established, they come to a place in the promised land where there are trade routes going north, south, east, west, all across land, from the water to the land. And so now they have the opportunity to, uh, to expand into commerce, where it's not dependent now on whether or not the crops come up, but they can work harder and build businesses and things like that. And so with that in mind, this author, Solomon, the preacher, is telling them, you need to be careful. Be careful about the world. Be careful about wealth and its draw in your lives. Be careful about trusting in the things under the sun. And we'll see throughout this book that praise under the sun over and over and over again. And that just means without God. Under the sun means the things of this world without God. And the other key phrase that we see is vanity. We saw in today's text, and we saw it all throughout the first two chapters already, and the word vanity is the Hebrew word havel, which is often translated as breath or smoke or wind. And it carries forth this idea, when you read vanity, you need to be thinking, okay, what is it like to try and capture the wind? Oh, I feel coming from the vent some wind, let me see if I can capture that and save it for later. You can't do it. It always slips through your fingers. And even if somehow you were able to capture wind, as soon as you try to show it to somebody, it's gone. That's the context, that's the idea that vanity is trying to carry forth. And so in chapter 1, verse 2, we see the theme of this entire book, Vanity of Vanities All is Vanity. And remember in the Old Testament, anytime we see something of something, that's the highest order. So the holy of holies is the holiest place there is, period, because that's where God is. So vanity of vanity means this is the worst, most vain, most vanity-laden thing. And it says all is that. So as we read through, we need to remember those two things. Vanity means chasing after the wind, and under the sun means all things done without God. Now in chapter 1... Uh, Verses 1 through 11, we saw a poem that opened this up, gives us our theme, helps us to understand what vanity is. And then in chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through the end of chapter 2, Solomon, the preacher, the author, tries out all the things under the sun, seeking for that contentment, that peace, that joy that we find in God. He tries out knowledge. Can I gain enough wisdom to secure me all of that contentment? No. No. It's vanity. He tries out pleasure and he tries out all the pleasures the world has to offer. No, it's vanity. He tries wise living. No, it's vanity. And he tries toil, our work. No, it's vanity. If we trust in any of these things without God, any of these things under the sun, it's vanity. Then we saw in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, this amazing poem that's probably the most known text from Ecclesiastes, especially if you listen to the birds in the 1970s. Uh, This poem about time, the birds was a band for those of you who were born after the 1970s. They have a song about, you know, for every season, turn, turn, all that good stuff. So in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, we get this poem about time. And God's not mentioned once. We talked about this last week. And it leaves us with this sense of unrest. Even though the last word is peace, this shalom, we're left uneasy because it gives us the sense that we don't have control of anything. And then in 9 through 15, we saw that God is sovereign and God has control of everything. It explained the poem. It explained to us what was going on. So now as this is where we're at. The author is continuing to show us the, the vanity of things without God, the vanity of things under the sun. More observations, not just about pursuing pleasure or pursuing the things under the sun, but also about life in general without God. And so that's where we're at. And that's what we're going to look at today as we open up chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. But before we do that, how many of you, and you can raise your hand, it's okay to participate, have ever heard that's not fair? For those of you who didn't raise your hand, I'm assuming you forgot deodorant, because I guarantee you all of us have heard that that's not fair, especially if we're around children. That's not fair. We hear this from kids, we think it ourselves, and usually what we really mean is, I don't like that. I don't want that. That didn't benefit me. Now, there are times when that's not fair is true. There are times when we see unfairness in the world, times when right people or right situations are actually punished instead of lifted up, times when innocents are accused of being guilty. So there are times of that's not fairness. And there's also this weighty sense of mortality. As we think about how short our lives are, even though they feel long, uh, Billy Graham in his 60s said, I didn't realize how short life was going to be. You know, everybody south of sixties is like, What? a long way away. But he got there and he's like, no, it's, it's much shorter than I anticipated. So as we have both injustice and mortality weighing over us, what does God tell us about these situation? How will we see justice? How will we be content despite the fact that one day we will pass away? Those are the two questions that Solomon is going to answer today. So we're going to look at justice, we're going to look at mortality, and we're going to look at today. Justice, mortality, and today. So let's start by looking at justice. In verses 16 and 17, Solomon, the preacher, the author, uh, is talking about justice. And he begins by saying, I saw that under the sun, in the place of justice, even there there was wickedness. And what is the place of justice? When we think about justice, we think about the civil courts. So even in the civil courts, the places where things are supposed to be fair, where all evidence is supposed to be examined and the right decision is supposed to be made, he finds wickedness. Wickedness in the courtroom, injustice, we, we expect justice to be there. In fact, the statue that we often see over uh, halls that uh, are you know, places where judges preside is this blind statue with the scales of justice. That's what we expect. We expect that there's no favoritism shown. We expect that justice is done. But here Solomon is saying, no, even in the courtroom, even in the civil courts, even in the places of justice, there is wickedness. When we read about this in the newspapers or see it on TV or see it in movies or television shows, what do we do? We cringe when we see this injustice. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't set well with us. But it gets worse because that injustice is not just in the courts, but it's also in the places of righteousness. In the place of righteousness, even there, there was wickedness. Where in Israel's history would the place of righteousness be? Many commentators believe that's the temple. So if the courts aren't fair, and they're supposed to be, we would absolutely expect that the priests and the temple were fair. The last place we would expect wickedness, besides the courts, would be The temple. The last place Israel should experience wickedness is God's house. And yet, it happens. So, Isaiah recognizes this in Isaiah 5, verses 22 and 23, speaking of the courts and of the temple Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe. And deprive the innocent of his right. There are people who do not judge justly. And there are people who, despite the fact that the temple should be a holy place, bring wickedness in. This is not good. If you've been with us in our Leviticus series, you've heard how there has to be purity in the camp so that God's presence can be there. And when there's impurity, it can spread and infect the entire nation of Israel. So it is not good that there's wickedness in the courts and there's wickedness in the temple. And then verse 17, whereas verse 16 brings us the bad news of justice, verse 17 brings us some good news. Verse 17 says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. there's a time for every matter and for every work. So we've heard the bad news that the highest court and the holiest place uh, have wickedness in them. So the question that the author is naturally leading us to is, does that mean things are hopeless? And he very quickly in verse 17 says, no, things are not hopeless. He says that under the sun, without God, things will be wicked. But with God in heaven, we see there is righteousness. We see that God will judge correctly. Craig O'Donnell in his commentary says, Here Solomon stands on the character and promises of God. In effect, he stands alongside God incarnate. We know that Jesus' trial before unrighteous religious leaders and unjust Roman court of law. We also know that in the words of 1 Peter 2, 22 and 23, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Solomon says that there's going to be wickedness in the courts. There's going to be wickedness in the temple. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus experiences both these on the same night. He experiences the, wi- the wicked religious leaders condemning him, then taking him to the wicked public leaders. And while he gets no justice in either one of those cases, what does he trust? As 1 Peter tells us, he trusts in the one who judges justly. There is good news That God will judge justly. Christ suffered under wicked court, wicked religious leaders, but God will judge all. We may not see that justice in our lifetime, which makes it hard. I have a very strong sense of justice, a very strong sense of that's not fairness. And so when I see that, it really bothers me. It bothers me when a company promises one thing and doesn't deliver, or when I buy something and don't get what I'm supposed to. And I may never see the justice for those things done wrong, whether they're simple and light, like the examples I just gave, or even more, whether they're death penalty injustices. In our lifetime, we may not see all justice done. However, we know like Jesus, that God will judge justly. And so we need to trust, like Jesus, that God has our back. Chris, will you put that picture up? Last week we talked about uh, the loom and how in a loom on the top you have this picture being made and underneath it you've got these threads hanging down and all these knots. And on this side of heaven we live underneath the loom. We see injustice, we see things done wrong, we see what doesn't seem to be right. And it looks like a mess, and we have no concept of what's going on. In fact, it makes it easy for us to say, this isn't good. If you're looking up from the bottom, you're like, ah, this is not what I want, this is not what it should be. But you see, one day, we'll be able to see from the top we'll be able to see from God's perspective that all along, despite the knots, despite the ropes, despite all this weirdness hanging down, God is painting a glorious picture, bringing his glory on earth. And we can't always understand from underneath, but one day we'll see from above. We live under the loom. We look up, we look around us, and we see a mess. But one day, We will be with God. In John's revelation, he says in chapter 21, verse 4, one day God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more suffering, no more crying anymore. That verse is one of the linchpins of our hope. While we live under the loom, while we live suffering the injustices, one day we'll see the top. One day, all sin, all suffering, all pain, all sorrow will be gone because God will reverse the effects of sin. This is the joy of the gospel, Romans 6.23, which is what we're teaching our counselors to teach the kids this year, for the wages of sin is death. Everything we can do on our own brings death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. How do we get this free gift of God? Not through our work, because our work leaves us with death. Only through the connection of Jesus Christ. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we trust Christ Jesus our Lord, even though we live under the loom, even though we see all this nastiness, even though justice isn't done, we know that one day he will wipe away every tear. We'll see the full picture of God's glory, and justice will happen. This is Solomon's encouragement here in verses 16 and 17. So now that we've looked at justice, let's look at mortality, because in verses 18 through 22, Solomon addresses our mortality. So we've looked at justice. We've seen that we live underneath the loom. We've seen that we might not experience full justice now, but one day we will have it. Now Solomon turns to our mortality and how our mortality should motivate us. In verse 18, we read, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see themselves like beasts so god is testing us and he's testing us to show us that we're just like the animals if we live under the sun we're just like the animals how are we just like the animals he answers that question in verses 19 through 21 now before we dive in 19 through 21 i want to just make a quick clarification solomon is not denying the fact that we are made in the image of god okay solomon is not denying scripture Instead, what he's saying is that our mortality, that living under the sun, the result of our lives is the same. If you look at Genesis 1, 27 through 30, he says we are made in the image of God. And then in Psalm 8, uh, verses 5 through 8, he says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, this is mankind, and crowned him, mankind, with glory and honor. You, God, have given him, mankind, dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, and the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. God has made us just under heavenly beings. And you know what's beautiful? Is that actually we see in Peter that the angels long to be like us. Because we get to see the glory of the gospel come to fruition. And so just clarify before we dive in, God is not saying that we are not made in his image. What God is saying is that under the sun, with this life, we die just like the animals. His point is that the most beautiful, successful woman ever and the ugliest, dirty hyena will both die and return to dust. One has just lived their life the way they're supposed to. One has lived their life to advance. But they both die and return to dust. Whatever we earn, we can't take with us. You don't see, as you often will hear the joke told, a U-Haul with all your stuff following a hearse. You don't get to take it with you. Genesis three nineteen says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We will die. Genesis 3 comes after Adam and Eve sinned. Why did Adam and Eve sin? Adam and Eve sinned because they wanted to be like God. Did they succeed? No. They failed miserably in trying to be like God because they didn't listen to God, they listened to Satan. Satan psalm forty nine twelve says man in his pomp will not remain; he is like the beasts that will perish, so all throughout scripture we get this theme repeating over and over and over again that despite whatever we do here on earth, we will die one day, and that mortality should shake us. We are not immortal in terms of living under the sun. we are immortal spiritually verse twenty one uh, says all go, or who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. Just for clarification, because this sounds like a really weird question. Like, wait, no, we know what happens with our spirits after we die. We get that clarification in the New Testament. What Solomon is saying here is that ultimately that dust remains. We both die. And so in verse 22, we have to ask the question, now what? Do we just, do we just give up? If our life is going to be more mortal, just like the animals, do we just give up? And some people have. Ernest Hemingway said, life is just a dirty trick from nothingness to nothingness. Those who believe in atheism or agnosticism will often say, now you enjoy what you can now because we're just going to become stardust once again. But Solomon is calling us not to despair. Instead, Solomon is calling us to trust in God. And as we trust in God, as we look to him for our contentment, our joy, our promise, our peace, and trust in him and him alone, then the things that he does give us of this earth, we can enjoy. And we see that in verse 22, which, by the way, is just a repetition something we've already seen in chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. We're to enjoy our meals, enjoy our work that God has gifted us and put us in. Enjoy the things of God. Not trust in them, not believe that they are going to give us contentment, but in believing God, enjoy the gifts that he has given. O'Donnell says this, In what you see, what you hear, And what you do, take joy. Reminders of our mortality should motivate us to rejoice. We should rejoice in what we see. We should rejoice in what we do. We should rejoice in our God-given, God-rewarded work. God reminds us of who we are and how short our lifespan is so that we rejoice in him and his gifts. Probably the most confusing part of the Apostles' Creed is after we talk about Jesus, we say he descended into hell. A lot of people don't like that. In fact, a lot of people will write that out. And while hell is a proper translation, what we think of when we hear hell is a place of eternal punishment. But what that word actually means is death. Jesus experienced death like we experienced death. He descended into the place of death. But he didn't stay there. What happened? On the third day, he rose again from the grave. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Christ experienced death and Christ defeated death. So as we look towards our death, we enjoy the gifts that God has given us. We enjoy the way that he has made us. We enjoy the many different blessings that we have looking to our eternal home, knowing that one day, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Whether we get there through natural death or whether Jesus comes back, one day we will be with God. And Solomon wants us to trust in God. So we've looked at justice and we've looked at mortality, these two examples that Solomon has given us. So let's look at today. How do we apply this text today? James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word, not just hearers only. So when we read the text, we need to understand what it's calling us to. And there's lots of different applications for lots of different texts, particularly depending on where you are. I just want to point out to us that God calls us in this text to contentment and to enjoying the gifts that he's given us. First, let's look at contentment. <clears throat> in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6-8, through 8, it says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. When things aren't fair, when our mortality is looming, remember that God is the just judge, and that he has promised that he will have us. So that in these difficult situations, and in all situations in life, we can be content In Him being sovereign, and we can be content in Him being God. Trust in His sovereignty. That's what chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, were about. You can't control time, you can't control situations. Trust in God's sovereignty. And when you're struggling with contentment, when you're struggling with trust, Remember Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. They cried out in a loud voice, O oh, Sovereign, Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It is okay. It is permitted for us to cry out in sorrow. When we are struggling, when it's, we have difficulties with our contentment, we can cry out to God, O oh God, how long? Knowing that he's sovereign, knowing that he's in control, <clears throat> we can cry out saying, God, we're underneath the loom. How long until you bring us home? How long until we see justice? How long until we see you? It is okay and appropriate to cry out to God. We're talking this morning in Sunday school about how the book of Psalms is the song book of the Bible. Some of them sound very whiny. Some of them sound very rejoicing. Some of them say, God, how long? I'm suffering. Bring me home. So this text tells us to find contentment in God and his character. And it also tells us to enjoy his gifts. And remember, we're trusting in the Lord for our contentment and enjoying his gifts, not trusting in his gifts for our contentment. But as we trust in the Lord for our source of salvation, for our joy, for our contentment, for the gospel truths, then we realize that he's the source and we can enjoy the gifts that he has given Enjoy them appropriately. Work to the glory of God. Seek excellence to show Christ's likeness Be a light in the darkness where you live, work, study, and play. Maybe you're in a neighborhood filled with Christians. Maybe you're not anywhere near anybody else. You live five miles near the closest person. Whatever the case may be. Maybe your, your workplace is open to the gospel and is mostly Christian. Maybe your workplace is dark and very close to the gospel. Maybe these places that you interact with are positive. Maybe they're negative. But you can still be like Christ. Even in a workplace where you can't openly proclaim your faith, you can still show Christ's likeness in your attitude, your love, and your prayers. Enjoy the gifts God has given you. If you're a parent or you're around kids, you will continue to hear, that's not fair! My brother my sister got something and I didn't. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not fair, and you just tell your kids to deal with it. But sometimes that unfairness is much greater than just a simple thing. He got five Cheetos, I only got four. Sometimes there is injustice in this world. Sometimes people get hurt. So as we see the injustice of the world, as we reflect on our own mortality, we have to remember We're under the loom. All we see are the knots and the threads, not the full picture. And while we're under the loom, we have to remind ourselves that we live in a fallen world. But even in the midst of this fallen world, God is in control, God is sovereign, and one day God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and reverse the effects of sin. One day we will be with him forever. And all the suffering, all the injustice, all the mortality that we dealt with here will be as nothing because we will be in the presence of God. So until He comes back or until you go to be with Him, you are called to contentment. Contentment in His character and His gifts. And you're called to enjoy what He has given you for the glory of God and the advancement of his gospel. Let's pray. Father, even as adults, we often think, if not say, that's not fair. We pray, Father, that the next time we say that, next time we hear that, instead of being frustrated or aggravated, we would remember that it isn't fair. That we live in a land of thorns and thistles. We don't live in the garden anymore. But one day, you will come again. You will wipe away every tear from our eyes. You will reverse the effects of sin. For the wages of sin is death. The things that we do don't gain us anything. But your free gift is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So Father, remind those of us who have trusted in Jesus how powerful that truth is. Give us hope in our own lives and hope that we demonstrate to others. And if there's anyone here, Father, that does not yet trust in Jesus, I pray that the Spirit would work in their heart. That this verse would help them to understand that you are the only source of contentment and peace. And that they would continue to seek after you that they would call you Father, repent of their sins, and be our brother or sister. Thank you for all these things, but thank you most of all for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the Word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.